time for all of us to take out our Bible, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, as we're going to look at part one of descriptors of false teachers. Descriptors of false teachers. 2 Peter 2, we'll look at verse 11 in just a moment, but faithful shepherds protect their sheep. That's an important job for a pastor. Whoever your pastor is, they must be about protecting the sheep. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Pastors are tasked with preaching the whole counsel of God for three reasons. One, to feed the flock, to teach the sheep in the flock how to feed yourselves spiritually and share the energy from that spiritual food in the form of serving using your spiritual gifts. Another thing a pastor is tasked to do is to protect the flock from false teaching, which is what we're looking at here in Second Peter. And three, to share the gospel of Christ to win the lost. So the first one's about discipleship. The last one is about evangelism. And in the middle is to protect the flock from false teaching. So your pastor should not necessarily be someone that you want, but someone you need. I'm not called to be liked or appreciated by everyone in the church family. I'm called to use the word of God to reprove, to correct, to guide, and train you into righteousness in order to equip and train all of you in the church family to be prepared to do every good work. A pastor should be respected as he faithfully shares the word of God. On any given Sunday, as the word goes out from this pulpit, I always pray that it will have its intended purpose for each and everyone's lives. We all walk in here. We all have different needs. We all have had different weeks. And the word of God in Isaiah 55 says that it's going to have its intended purpose. For some, it may mean to bring conviction of sin or to be challenged. For someone else, it's to comfort. It's to bring joy. It's to encourage whatever it is to build others up. The word of God, as it goes out, will fulfill what its purpose is. And God has called me to preach as if he were the only one in this room. And so that keeps me focused on preaching the whole counsel of God in the context of the whole Bible and not shy away from difficult teachings. Peter gives pastors and elders this charge in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. And I encourage you this week to take some time to read that because that's what pastors and elders are about, characteristics but also descriptors of what they do. And I encourage you to read that so you can pray. Pray for the elders. Pray for myself. As we have carry out the responsibilities and the courage of our convictions, whether they're politically correct at the time or popular or not. And I hope that you look back on the time here as I was pastor, that I was pastor that was needed at this time in history for this church family. So let's look at, let's flip over, keep your finger in 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to flip over to Ephesians chapter 4 first for our scripture reading. But I want you to be ready to go back to 2 Peter 2. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Verses 16, actually. It says, Paul says, And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers for the purpose to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head, into him, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that's a summary, basically, of what God is doing through the local church and through the leaders. May God have his blessing at the reading of his word. Let's bow for prayer as we commit our time to him. Father, we're grateful that we can have the freedom to worship here today. There's many of our brothers and sisters around the world that would give anything to have this opportunity and this freedom, to have a full uh, word of God to hold on to. And so, Lord, help us to not take this time lightly and help us to open our hearts to receive from you what you have for us. As I mentioned earlier, all of us come here with different needs, with different times. God, may the word of God do its work in our hearts. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we didn't get to finish verses 9 and 10 of 2 Peter 2, so flip back to that. And we're going to review quickly the main points of last week's message. We talked about the, the, the destruction and deliverance by the same God. How God is balanced because of his holiness and his attributes and his character qualities. And when he carries out anger, wrath, and judgment, he also has love, mercy, and grace on the other side. He's got the perfect balance of these things. And we looked at the raging wrath of God on display, verses 4 through 6. Then we talked about the redeeming mercy of God on display. We talked about how God, the deliverer, rescued Noah. Eight people were on the ark. He rescued Lot. Lot was reluctant to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels had to drag him out. His wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. But today, we get to this blank here, the response of God in balance of wrath and mercy. The response of God in balance of wrath and mercy. In 2 Peter 9, it says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 10 says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. If the Lord rescued Noah and Lot out of the depths of sin in their culture, we can live in our culture and look to God for wisdom and guidance, knowing with confidence that he will protect us as we're here and we're salt and light in this world, but then ultimately he will deliver us. That word trials here in verse 9 means an intent to attack. When these things tend to attack you. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know that the demons and Satan are focused on believers to thwart us of glorifying God and serving in his kingdom work and to bring others into the kingdom of light. And we see at the beginning of verse 9, Peter's referring back now to verse 4. Verse 4 said, if or since, now he's saying then. And basically, to summarize, he rescues the saved. He will also, if he rescues the saved, he will also reserve the unrighteous for eternal torment and hell forever. And if God did these things in the past, he will do them again in the present and certainly 
in the future. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling compassion and despise authority. Look at verse 10 there. False teachers indulge the flesh to feed their fleshly desires in an unrighteous manner. They despise those who are in authority over them. They reject the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives. Instead of surrendering in humility daily to be living sacrifices for God, they desire to live out their lives however they want to, based on their selfish feelings and desires. In 2 Peter 2.1, at the beginning of this chapter, it says these false teachers even deny the master who bought them. Now think about that. They probably know the gospel. They've been exposed to it, but they reject it. The one who paid for their opportunity to be saved from hell and to be able to enjoy an abundant life here on planet Earth. So our God is full of grace and mercy to those who come to him and follow him on his terms. That's what's so great about the gospel. Many say, well, you know, Jesus was really, you know, inclusive by saying, I, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes on my name shall have eternal life. And so they have to come to him on his terms, realizing the finished work of Christ on the cross, realizing we're sinners, realizing that we can't earn our way to heaven but it's by grace that we're saved through faith. So to today's message, as we wrapped up where we were last week, Peter's second letter here is filled with some of the strongest words of rebuke concerning false teachers in all the New Testament. False teachers are substituting spiritual poison for the pure milk of the word of God in 1 Peter 2.2. Notice Peter doesn't single out a particular false teacher he doesn't name names like the Apostle Paul does at times. But Peter is giving us descriptive phrases, word pictures, so that down through the ages of church history, we can see and spot and understand what a false teacher looks like and what they do. One caveat here is that times any one of us who teach can make mistakes about how we present the word. And the good thing is that we have people to make us accountable. I have people from time to time and say, well, what did you mean by this? Or this wasn't accurate. And I appreciate that because who can know all things? But a false teacher is more interested in not being accountable, but promoting and teaching what he believes as a consistent basis and doesn't want to be challenged by what people say. And they, these false teachers, face the highest levels of condemnation because they're leading people straight to hell. So let's look at our first main point in today's message. False teachers are filled with pride. False teachers are filled with pride. Look at the second part of verse 10. Bold and willful, speaking of false teachers, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. First of all, they are disrespectful of spiritual authority. They are disrespectful of spiritual authority. In the second part of verse 10 here, we see that these false teachers have a deep disdain for any authority, even spiritual authority. Notice they're described as bold, which means daring or reckless ones. Self-willed, that means self-pleasing full of conceit, typical of an attitude of an unsaved person lost in their sin. 
It's interesting that Peter says here that they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. The Bible teaches these glorious ones, angels, are worshiping and serving God. But it's interesting, as you read through the Bible, these angels never renounce or rebuke the fallen angels they continually war against in the spiritual realms. Even the bad angels are created by God, and the other angels show respect for them even in battle. Michael the archangel did not denounce the evil authorities. Let's look at one example in Jude chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Yet in like manner, these people also, false teachers relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael leaves it up to God to do the rebuking. But false teachers do what Michael and other good angels would not do. They even blaspheme the angels. For as human beings, we should respect the spiritual beings that we can't see around us. While we are the center, the focal point of God's creation, they are also created by God. And we need to treat them with respect. But also, human beings are made in the image of God. We need to treat them with respect, dignity, and compassion. But these false teachers blaspheme the glorious ones, the angels. This means that they slander, speak lightly of, or profane things that are sacred. They have no reverence or fear of God. We see many charlatans preaching out there in the name of Jesus. We see the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth. You just need to have enough faith and God will make you rich and God will keep you healthy. We see other charlatans saying to combine Satan and damn demons to come and send them to hell. Be careful what you do with demons. We have to have a healthy respect for our enemy. There were some sons of Sceva that took on the demons in Acts chapter 19. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Be careful who you're taking on. Know your enemy. And a verse that's challenging to me as I think about this idea of fearing God and reverencing him. I have this as a verse that I've been thinking about a lot the last few months in Isaiah 66 too. All these things God said, my hand is made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Folks, do we tremble at the reading of God's word? Not out of utter fear, but in reverence and respect for God. Does it make us, when we hold that word of God in our hands, does it make us want to obey him, to worship him, to honor him as we read the unfiltered truth from the very throne room of God that we possess? As believers, we need to live in confidence and in true humility and utter dependence upon God each and every day. 
Well, these false teachers also desire, desire to live by their fleshly instincts. In verse 12 of 2 Peter 2, but these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. He describes these false teachers as irrational animals. Another translation calls them brute beasts. Animals are programmed by God with instincts that make them live and do certain things. And these false teachers live off their feelings, their fleshly desires, their passions. In Jude chapter 1, verse 10, it says, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Just like true animals, some of them made by God to be caught and killed and be consumed by humans for food, or others to be consumed by wildlife to live, these false teachers blaspheme, revile, renounce things that they're ignorant of. They use the word through the lens of what will control those under their listening and what will benefit them through their teaching for their personal gain. So with these apostates, they make a lot of noise about things they know nothing about. The Phillips translation of 2 Peter 2.12 says, they scoff at things outside their own experience. The NIV reads, but these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. Warren Wiersbe talked about um, when he was in elementary school and he had a teacher. And whenever her pupils were noisy in class, the teacher would say, empty barrels make the most noise. And that's the truth. These folks do not understand what they're even reviling against. They will be completely and utter destroyed by God. To put an exclamation point on that, take your Bible and turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. Because I want us to read, and these verses aren't going to be on the screen, so I encourage you to turn over there to verse 9 as we think about what is the end of these false teachers? What is eternity going to look like for them? It tells us in Revelation 20 and verse 9 that the end of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ toward the end of that time, Satan is going to be unbound because he will be bound for most of that time. And after he's unbound, he will gather people to rebel against Jesus, one final attempt to overthrow Jesus Christ on his throne in Jerusalem. And that's the picture here. And in verse 9, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades was thrown into the eternal lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is where false teachers are headed because they follow after 
Satan and the way they do things. The next thing we see is false teachers disregard the consequences of their sin. They disregard the consequences of their sin. In verse 13 of 2 Peter 2, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They know that there's consequences for their action, but they don't care. Maybe they think they will beat the system and they won't face it. Or maybe they know their destruction is sure and they want to take as many people with them as they possibly can. But they are horribly wrong. The prophet Hosea says this, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it's the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. But he talks about how the false teachers plowed iniquity. You've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of the lies because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. Humility. We need humility as believers in Christ. There's a story in Greensboro, North Carolina, and this story could occur right here in Davenport because we have one of those truck-eating bridges as well. In Greensboro, North Carolina, a truck from out of state came and had never encountered this particular bridge before, and it got lodged underneath it. So they brought the wreckers in, and they brought people in, and they tried a lot of different ways to get that truck out from under the bridge because it was stuck. And they were kind of stumped. And then a young boy, a student in the crowd, walked up and said to them, why don't you do this? Why don't you deflate the tires on the truck? And so wouldn't you know it, as the air screamed out of the tires of that truck, the truck came down, lowered itself, and the wrecker came and pulled the truck out. But it took humility for all those mechanics and those workers to listen to that young lad for advice. You and I, we need to learn from these false teachers to seek humility and dependence on God for our understanding of God and his word. Humility, dependence. We've got to continually remind ourselves that we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough, we don't have all the wisdom, but we know the one who does, that we go to him in humility and receive from him. False teachers are filled with pride. Another description that Peter uses to talk about false teachers is that false teachers are bold in their practice of sin. And we've already seen that in some of these verses that we've already talked about, but Peter's going to highlight that even more at the second part of verse 13 of this chapter in verse 14. In verse 13, in the middle of that, it says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They're going against the cultural and natural norms of society. When this was written, the Roman Empire occupied Israel. And even the Romans who served false gods and everything else, they wanted social decorum. They were okay with wild living after dark and at night. But even the pagans didn't like wild living and riotous things going on during the daytime. And yet, these false teachers pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're consumed by lust, greed, and different vices, even in public for all to see, and they justify it. Peter describes them as having blots and blemishes, like a stain on a shirt, like a scratch on an expensive ring. They tarnish the message of Christ as they distort it. Other word pictures here of blots and blemishes include 
like a malignant sore, scabs, or things with defect. Notice the contrast here. Peter said that God wanted pastors, teachers, and elders to teach with the goal of presenting the church, the bride of Christ, to him without spot or blemish. The opposite of what false teachers do. And Paul, writing in the book of Ephesians, says this, so that Christ might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the bride of Christ, the church, might be holy and without blemish. The goal of the false teachers is just opposite of what Paul says here. It says in verse uh, 13 that they revel in their deceptions, they enjoy their sin, and all the pleasure and all the fruits of it. The writer of Hebrews uses the example of Moses to warn against them that Moses was forsaking the blessings of being an Egyptian. You remember the story? He was adopted into Pharaoh's court. He was educated and raised with Pharaoh. But there came a time that God called him to deliver Israel, and so he had to forsake the Egyptian way of life and all the wealth and prestige and honor that he had available to identify with the Hebrew people to deliver them. And in Hebrews 11.25, it says, Moses choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The Bible says that sin has fleeting pleasure. And it is pleasurable for a while. But there's an end in sight. There's a payday at the end of that time. Notice now that Peter adds at the end of verse 13, while they feast with you. This is a reference to the love feast associated with the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we don't read that section so much uh, after we talk about the Lord's Supper, but what went on in the early church was that when they celebrated communion and the Lord's Supper together, they had what was called the love feast. And everybody would bring food to gather together, the rich, the middle class, the poor. And they would have a feast but they also would take time to remember and reflect on Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and taking the elements. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 rebukes them because the rich people came and they became gluttonous and they became drunk. And by the time the poor people showed up, there wasn't any food to share with them. And because of that, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 through 22, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He rebuked them because they made it something that it shouldn't have been. It should have been something where they come together in unity and fellowship and focusing on the Lord's sacrifice. Because of the sin of those who gorge themselves to the neglect of the poor, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that some of them got sick and some even died because they had the wrong motives for coming to the love feast. This shows, as it talks about these false teachers feasting with you, that they were involved in this kind of opportunity to be with the people. They infiltrated the church as they feast among you. In, John, in Jude 1.12, it says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. We see also that in the practice of sin, they boldly sin. They boldly sin. In verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. 
insatiable for sin. The lust, the unrighteous desires and behavior are never satisfied. Eyes full of adultery, spiritual frauds who look on women or men lustfully, wishing to be involved with them sexually, filled with impure thoughts. Proverbs 26.11 says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool that repeats his folly. And that's what they do. Proverbs 23.25, describing the verses before the repeated patterns of a drunkard, When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Warren Wearsby said this, A person can become so accustomed to his vices that he sees them as virtues. We get so used to pattern of sin in our life that we accept it. We rationalize it. We justify it. Jesus shared with the woman at the well in John 4 that the only living water given to us by Jesus Christ will satisfy the soul. We sang that in that song, Be Thou My Vision, that he is the satisfier of our soul. Blaise Pascal, a philosopher, said this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created being It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. If you're here and you feel like you have a void in your life and there's things that do not satisfy you, Jesus Christ is the only one that can meet all your needs. Not your spouse, not your children, not money, not material things, but Jesus Christ alone. While these false teachers bait the weak believers into false teaching, they bait the weak believers into false teaching. In verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. And Peter says, accursed children. I love this word entice. In the Greek, it's a picture of someone, a fisherman, baiting a hook or preparing a lure to drop it into the water, to attract a fish, to bring it up, and then, of course, to to eat it, to clean it and eat it. Enticer means that these false teachers prey on new believers, weak believers in Christ, undiscerning believers, even non-believers. There's a story about how they catch monkeys in northern Africa and other parts of the world where monkeys are, and there's hunters that like to capture them. I'm told they take a a coconut, and uh, they punch a little hole in it, and they drain out the inside of the coconut. And then what they do is they put palm nuts or bananas in there, and then at night... The monkey comes along, and the hole is big enough so he could put his hand in, but when he grabs the nuts or the banana with his clenched hand, he can't get it out of the hole. And so that monkey will stay there for hours trying to figure out how to get that prize out of that trap. And, of course, they come along and capture them. That's the idea of being enticed. We see also in verse 14 the word trained. That's the word where we get gymnasium. This means that their greed is something planned ahead of time. It's practiced. It's exercised. It's disciplined as an athlete trains in a gym for a competition. It's not an accident or a byproduct of what they do, but premeditated to, for their personal gain. And then Peter uses strong language at the end of verse 14. He calls them accursed children, showing his total disgust for false teachers. This is a phrase in Hebrew language concerning people who are children of whatever influences their lives. He's calling them children of Satan or children of hell with this phrase. Just remember that Jesus called the false teachers of his day 
children of the devil in John 8, 44. Warren Wiersbe says this, there could be no freedom or fulfillment apart from submission to Jesus Christ. The purpose of life, said P.T. Forsyth, is not to find your freedom, but to find your master. Just as a gifted musician finds freedom and fulfillment, putting himself or herself under the discipline of a great artist or an athlete under the discipline of a great coach, so the believer finds true freedom and fulfillment under the authority of Jesus Christ. So who are you a servant to? We're a servant to something in our lives or someone. Are we a servant to sin? Are we a servant to Christ? Our application here is this, that we need to take notice of our sin when we see it forming a bad habit in our life. We need to do something about it. We can't let it continue on because it'll bring God's loving discipline upon us, wanting us to repent and come back to him. We need not be like these false teachers to allow the habit of sin take control of our lives. Our last point today is this, that false teachers are focused on their personal gain, on their personal gain. Pride, practice sin, personal gain. The last two verses we'll look at today in 2 Peter 2, 15 and 16, forsaking the right way, these false teachers have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Notice he says, first of all, forsake the right way, choosing the way of Balaam. Balaam wanted money over being a true prophet of God. He was a prophet for hire. Balaam did two things as a false teacher in trying to gain wealth and encourage immorality among the Israelites. One, as it's talked about here, he was paying the Moabite leaders, or he was paid by the Moabite leaders to bring a curse on Israel so that God wouldn't intervene and the Moabites could come and annihilate them and take control of them and make them their servants and to gain all their lot for themselves. But two, when that failed, Balaam encouraged the Moabites to intermarry with the Israelites, which was against God's command and would bring idolatry into the ranks of the Jewish people. And if God had not intervened with that donkey talking to Balaam, Balaam would have willfully uh, been used to possibly annihilate God's people. Forsaking the right way, but also follow the way of Balaam by filthy gain. Balaam was rebuked by God through the voice of the donkey for his sin. God restrained, it says, the prophet's madness. What does madness mean? It means he was out of his mind for money. He was acting irrationally. And Peter's making the correlation that false prophets in his day and today have the same descriptions and character qualities. They are proud. They want money. They're involved. Or they permit. Or they encourage sexual immorality. Notice the end of Balaam in Numbers 31, verse 8. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Proverbs 13, 15 reminds us of this. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. So our application here is this, to know that no one can thwart God's will. No one can thwart God's will. And obviously, we don't want to be 
uh, complicit with anything that would go against God's will. But these false teachers are doing everything to go opposite of what God wants. Our key thought for today is this. The key to avoid false teaching is to consistently study the Word of God, to obey God's Word, and examine all teaching through the filter of God's Word. Those are three simple things. We, should, we will give you more on how to be a discerning believer as we go through. But the foundation is this. If you study the word, you can spot a counterfeit. And you've heard that illustration used many a time. When you go to work for a bank, they don't teach you to look at counterfeit money. No, they want you to identify what real money looks like, what the true money looks like, so that when you see the counterfeit, you can spot it right away. We need to be studying the word, obeying the word, and examining all teaching through the filter of God's word. Here's some questions to ponder this week as we closed. How has pride in your past brought damage to your life, big or small? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves from time to time. Because we are so prone as human beings to pride. And how has it hurt us? What have we learned from that? What are we doing differently to put on humility in our lives today so that we don't follow the same patterns and have some of the same negative outcomes that have occurred in our life? How can we avoid allowing sin to become a habit in our life? If you start seeing things repeated, repeated, and you're asking God to forgive you over and over, maybe it's time to reevaluate where you are spiritually and what you need to do. And to build a new habit, you have to say no to a bad habit and begin a new process. Lastly, how can we avoid being an obstacle to God's working in our life and in his kingdom work? Surrendering to God and saying, Lord, help me. Point out to me the things in my life that maybe are hindering your work in my life or your kingdom work through me. As we think about these things this week, let's bow for a word of prayer. As we pray, we know these are tough teachings to think about false teachers, but we live in a society of false teaching all around us, in the media, in our churches, and other places. And so this week, ask God to help you to be a discerning believer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that Peter gives us with all these descriptions of who a false teacher is and what they look like. And Lord, may it help us to allow our Holy Spirit, to allow that antenna of the Holy Spirit to pop up from time to time when we hear untruth, when we hear teaching that doesn't match up with the Bible. And it should register with our spirit because your Holy Spirit, through his word, reveals these things to us. And help us to even examine those that we often listen to in podcasts or sermons to compare them to the Word of God to make sure that they're faithfully giving out the whole counsel of God in the way that they approach these things. So Lord, help us to be discerning. Help us to be aware. Help us to not fall prey for false teaching in our lives. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.